All right, last one. Hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today we're wrapping up all the loose ends of our playthrough of the N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God AD&D module by Douglas Niles. If this is the first episode of the show for you, uh, welcome. Th- thank you for uh, coming to hang out. But uh, I also recommend you go back to the start of the Reptile God series to catch up with what's been going on with the adventure, and then come back here after to find out uh, how it all ends, as well as the happenings afterwards to provide a denouement for the players, leading towards the future adventures to come. I'm pretty sure I butchered that word. spoke to Root, the true Root. He said he was a drifter, but from the words I heard from the villagers as we returned to Orlane, he was loved by all. For his mastery of the kitchen, his optimism, and his wisdom. He may not have been born here, but he was justifiably an important member of this community, and I will carry his death with me forever. Root, I'm sorry, and I can't say it enough. May Ullman watch over your soul to wherever it goes. Aye, the bespoke parting given by that fervent priest of Ulman, one of the veritable heroes of Orlane. From the south they came out of that treacherous place known as Fence Keep. They may be our neighbors and good for trade, but you won't be ever catching me headed down there that far into the swamp, not at all. I like it behind the bar here just fine. The Golden Grain Inn's been good to me, good to the town, and good to others who come blowing through here. Just like Rude did. Where they went? Who? Oh, the heroes of Orlane. Well, I can't tell you rightly. It seems they were here one day, gone the next. Alright, fine. If it matters to you so much, buy another beer and I'll tell you. What's this? The Draxian Scales? Don't see currency like this outside the capital very often, but like you said, as a trader you go places plenty of others don't. Alright then. What's to tell? As I said, they first came up from Fen's Keep, arrived back near two weeks after they dealt with that reptile god business, but they didn't stay long. Adventurers rarely do. Most of them took their ship back south into the swamp. Oh, that's right, one of them did it. The priest of Olmond, that little bat fella, Skichi. Turns out, some of his fellow priests came out this far to find him. Guess the god of sight and all brought them this far out, but I can tell you the high observer they traveled with didn't look friendly. Pate-like stone and dull granite skin, with black eyes that shook you to the core. Ugh, still gives me shivers remembering him. Still, the whole group paid well, and I know a couple of other gods whose clergy ain't so keen to do that. They took him, or I guess so much as went with them, westward up the river. No priest myself, but I figure if the head of the local chapel or whatever shows up, you don't go turning down whatever it is they're offering. The cleric didn't tell me where they was going, but one of his friends, uh, Pedwar, the dwarf who is a bit more fond of drinking than others, said they were headed to Akesh, the city of the lion. Decent travel to get there, no matter if you're taking boat or wagon westward, but it's a busy enough trade place if you're thinking about heading up there yourself. 
Although I'd recommend hiring at least one guard. Say, uh, what was it you were hauling again? And where you were from? You want to talk about art? Let me talk about art for a sec. There's a marked level of improvement that we've gotten over the decades, especially if you're looking at the stuff the game started with. I've been on and off with the Art and Arcana book that Wizards of the Coast put out a while ago, which is partly a, uh, it's basically a historical compilation of Dungeons and Dragons told alongside the visual materials of the game for a specific time period. And just looking at what it used to be compared to what it is now evokes such appreciation for modern interpretations, but also awe at how striking these older works are. The new stuff even pays homage to the older stuff, or homage? It, it pays tribute to the older stuff, with the Spirit Naga entry in the 5e monster manual having a quote attributed to her. Before I even get to the encounter about Aquisita Defilus, I gotta tell you there's something about this art from the older module that I can't get enough of. These strong black and white silhouettes that are just iconic. Do yourself a favor and do a quick image search for Explicita Defilus. And you'll see what I mean. She's got that, it's essentially a stretched human appearance along a giant snake's body twisted around a pile of gold complete with a complimentary skull. And the monstrous look of her face would have probably given, nightmares, uh, given me nightmares as a kid. And I think it's still creepy even now. Not everything in old school D&D I'd say is great. But in my opinion, this particular drawing of a spirit naga is just, it's just awesome. And now that I've front-loaded you with talking about how cool I think the art is, let's start talking about how the party f wrecks her We last left our heroes exploring the hallways beneath the swamp where the vile spirit naga, explicit to Defilus, plots all of her machinations. They interrogated a yuan who revealed the true nature of the villain they seek, and now it's up to them to finish what they came here to do. Free the people of Orlane and of her influence. They've gone past dozens of cultists and troglodytes this, at this point, uncovered ancient secrets about snake kind, and even freed the prisoners that would be the next set of cultists in service to the reptile god. But none of that would matter if they didn't finish the job, ending her reign once and for all. Behind their altar of evil, at the end of a row of finished rooms in the second level of the dungeon, the party revealed a secret passage leading straight to the throne room of Explicita Defilus. It was a huge cavern lit by a ghostly green glow emanating from the eight columns supporting the vaulted ceiling. Water occupied most of the cavern, and on its far side away from the party was a flat-bottomed boat set along the shore. Directly in front of them, though, was the reptile god herself, coiled atop a collection of her favorite treasures and skulls of her most aided enemies. She hoped that soon, that pile would include the bodies of her current foes, the soon-to-be heroes of Orlane. The module gives a ton of text talking about the strategies of Explicita Defilus, and if the group had managed to bring Ramni along as well. Apparently Ramni would also tell them about the Naga's charm ability, but only right now as opposed to telling it to them earlier. Uh, whatever, there isn't quite anything like that for a stat block of the uh, on the stat block of the 5e Spirit Naga other than the ability to cast Dominate Person, which may or may not even work against the party, and would take a whole turn for her to cast one spell, so she's likely to do something else in my opinion. For example, Fireball, especially when the party is in close proximity of one another. But if you take a quick look at the block, you'll see that she has Lightning Bolt instead. It's fine, just swap the spells. Much like doing a homebrew monster, you're free to take apart what you like about existing monsters and change what you don't. Honestly, I think Lightning Bolt would probably work fine if that's what you wanted to stay with, 
but I thought it would be more fun in the spirit of the original module to give her Fireball instead. So I did. The module mentions that Ramney would cast a globe of invulnerability to protect the party, but what if he isn't present, like with my group? A couple of episodes ago, I mentioned the party found something that would prove invaluable to them. A scroll of counterspell, which is a spell that interrupts a caster's attempts. Automatically succeeding, uh, if the spell is third level or lower, which Fireball is, or requiring a DC ability check against the spell's level. But Ulrun was only a level 3 sorcerer, only capable of casting up to spells of second level. So this required a save DC of 13 against his spell casting modifier in order to use the scroll successfully. So, he rolled, in hopes to save his party from eating an immediate 8d6 fire damage before they even got their first turn. He succeeded by a mile. For a while, Olrun's player had been trying to find a place to shine amidst his martial allies and healing capabilities, but here it was because only he, as a mage with that spell on his list, was capable of casting it. There were still things in this game that the player hadn't discovered, aspects of its design where he would find his place. Even with the solution of hand, there was still a risk involved. But that's still part of the game, isn't it? You can imagine how a 5v1 went for the monster. A challenge rating of 8 meant nothing against just the pure amount of damage the party could dish out in a few rounds. Explicit Defilus has no damage resistances to speak of, so she wasn't capable of like negating some of the damage they did. She got to cast Blight and kept the party on their toes for other dangers she was hiding up their sleeve. But ultimately, she proved no match for them. Elated by Ulrun's counterspell against the immediate fireball she was about to chuck at them, which would have absolutely incinerated uh, a good number of them, probably knocking out two or maybe even three, the group followed suit to make short work of the Naga within, like, four rounds. Don't be dismayed if that occurs, either. Um, I'll admit, as a younger DDM, I was too attached to my monsters, too enamored with the idea that I should be posing an authentic challenge each and every encounter. It doesn't need to be that way. I go so far as to say the frogs prove more troublesome to the group than Explicit Defilus did. You're free to maybe tack on some more health on a boss monster, or give them an extra action if you're feeling saucy, but it's also okay for the party to wipe the floor with that encounter. Don't worry, you'll get them next time. And if you can provide them the thrills they're seeking from such a fight, there will always be a next time. Each encounter that you put in front of them is as much a chance for them to learn about playing their characters and how they interact with the party as it is for you to improve your design and your own skills at just running the game. So if it doesn't play out exactly how you expect, don't worry. At the end of the night, all that matters is if you had a good time. So it was for this group. They were ecstatic. At this point, the adventure had taken over two months of real-time sessions, about nine in total. With that amount of time investment, they were ready to have this enemy conquered and the quest succeeded. I don't think they were expecting to wrap up the way it did, though. And that's what I uh, wanted to say for this part. It's easy enough at the end of a quest to say, Hooray, you've slain the great foe of typical village, and they shower you in praise and gold, and you'll always have a place to rest your head here, and so on and so forth. Tip number two of this episode, spice it up. Bring them back to town. Make the ending of the adventure just as memorable as this fight and the start. As for treasure, I did it a little differently. I ended up not using the treasure depicted in the module. I do admit I have a bit of, like, uh, a bit, I'm a bit scared using the treasure amounts between different editions, uh, especially older ones, because, for example, third edition, 
um, is all about the magic items, and that's a primary way it used for scaling. So at early on, you're just getting plus ones and plus twos, you know, super quick. Um, it may also just be that I'm a bit of a miser when it comes to handing out material rewards to the players. So I just ended up having them roll on the tables shown in the Dungeon Master's Guide to see what they ended up with. They were showered with thousands of gold pieces and a number of magic items to boot. A treasure hoard is also a good spot to drop any specific items you have in mind that may tie into the campaign. For me, it was a mindstone of a dwarf mythic hero who communicated with Pedwar telepathically and would lead to a couple of tie-ins with previous campaigns I've run. Also, if you find yourself in a um, currency predicament where your players are flush with cash, don't be afraid to suggest to them options about how they could spend that money if they don't have any in mind. They could end up wanting to just hold on to that gold for no real reason. So perhaps take it upon yourself to present to them the things they could do with it, leading to the adventures you want to run. I think they're probably going to fall for it. As the module wraps up, it states that the Nog is killed and those charmed by her are freed of her enchantment. The party secured the two prisoners they ran into earlier, and rather than just having them backtrack through the dungeon, I had a secret staircase at one of the chamber ends of Explicita Defilus' cavern slash throne room that took them all the way up to the very surface of the swamp. I think that's just good design to use if your party has to spend in-game days or even uh, weeks getting to the dungeon's lowest level. It's fun to provide them a way to get out quickly, such as, um, like, riding on the back of a rescue dragon. The secret staircase was less dramatic, but still useful. Atop the dungeon, the party ran into the human cultists, freed from the charm and in desperate need uh, of someone to help them. After flooding the temple of the reptile god by sabotaging the barricades along the entranceway, the party headed northward to the forest where they encountered that shape-shifting druid I mentioned so long ago. Arena Hollysong had been around this part of the world for a while and wished to gauge the actions of the party, mostly to cast down on them. I didn't want the party to think that they had done wrong by defeating the Naga, but was curious to see how they'd take it uh, if an NPC approached them about the consequences of their good actions. To Hollysong, the Naga served to prevent other dangerous threats from moving into the region. But with the, with the explicit to defile us dead, those threats could do just that. Those that were here before could come back to their homes, seeing it as their right. Were these self-styled heroes ready to deal with the actions of their consequences? What if Orlane was endangered once more? Would the heroes return to answer that cry for help? Of course they would, they said. They were heroes. Arena smiled and went on her way, but for us as dungeon masters, this can foreshadow terrible events to come bringing the party back to this very spot once more and to illustrate an important lesson. Just as much as their failures, their successes too could or should have consequences. Maybe the party needs to return to fight off a different cult, or perhaps even explicit to Defilus herself returns. One of the peculiar aspects of Nagas is that they don't experience true death, but instead return after a number of days. Of course, it would be some time before she would probably want to set up an operation uh, on this scale again in the region, or even could, or perhaps she decides, oh, I'm just going to take everything, just go somewhere else altogether. It's up to you if that's something you think would add to the drama of your game. This module, in its wrap-up section, even mentions that as a possibility, the previous threats who lived here before the Naga returned to claim what they see as theirs by right. It doesn't help that, surely after all this, the Orn Lane militia will be lacking in strength. Side note, I think you could probably do something neat if uh, you center your entire campaign 
around one village specifically. Maybe like all the party members will go off and have their own adventures and then you just bring them all back and they just kind of like talk about what they do on their own. All right. Yeah, that might be cool. Also, probably a bit less work for you to just be centering it around just, you know, essentially one town and the different things that are coming to destroy it. After dealing with the aggressively true neutral archdruid, the party uh, took, to the road, took the road westward, marching with the rescued villagers until they reached the town of Orlane, where they were greeted as heroes and saviors, the welcome they were long expected. At the Golden Grain Inn, now a safe haven for the party, the mayor, Zacharias Ormond, held a feast in honor of those that had come to their town and freed them from the dreadful grip of Explicita Defilus. It was a somber celebration, as the realization of various townsfolk of um, the actions of what they did and those who were still lost could not be dismissed. But Antonio and Chatu did their best as entertainers to provide a livelier mood to help them return to some level of normalcy. Elsewhere, Skaji, the mayor, and Bertram Beswill held a quiet funeral outside the Golden Grain Inn for the innocent that Skaji uh, had taken, Root, the cook. The first part of the recap was what the player had written, and I didn't expect it. I wasn't prepared for that level of emotional investment from someone at the table, ever. But as always, you never know what's going to happen until you sit down to play. And that was perfect. <laughs> what, a, what a way to bring this adventure to a close. With a eulogy for a minor NPC whose death was the catalyst for all the events to follow. In that moment, I, I cried. And we all cried. Something I'm not sure that will ever happen again at my table. Something I can never plan for. Try as I might. The end of the adventure doesn't need to be that. It's fertile soil for you to plant seeds of where your campaign could go next. The following day, the party had a discussion with Zacharias Ormond about events threatening to transpire. He showed them a letter from Baron Turvin Blackshield, no less, their current employer. He had heard from sources he was unwilling to disclose that the Prism Wizard's plot to invade the Drifting Isles were nearing completion, and that a conflict would arrive on their doorsteps, sooner or later. They would need to take sides, something Mayor Ormond was hesitant to commit to. The party urged him to stay independent, they themselves unsure of how to proceed with a matter far grander than they, than they were aware of. Aside from this, Olrun still needed to fix the matter of the Night Hag's haunting, still sapping him of maximum hit points. Short of going to Ukesh directly, he was unlikely to find someone capable of working a spell strong enough to release him, or at the very least, restore his hit points. Thankfully, Ramni, the local sage, knew of a dangerous way they could address it, including travel to where his people come from, the moon. By mental projection, at least. Their Dawn Guard allies, Dorian and Llewellyn, returned to town as well. Unfortunately, they weren't able to catch up with Desley, but they still could provide some help here. At least, so Dorian hoped. Llewellyn was hesitant about this, because Dorian, the sickly and helpful one of the two brothers, could volunteer his abilities to help with whatever the ritual it was. Not without risk to himself, however. The heroes of Orlane had proven themselves valiant and just, and he would be honored to help them, though. Skaji also had a different matter of importance. The head of his church in the region, the High Observer, had been, let's say, had visions of the party's actions, and came to give the party cleric his rightful due, ascension to the role of Inquisitor, one of the highest honors of those serving in the Church of Ulmond. He would need return with them to Ukesh to complete the ritual, and then be free after that. This served two purposes. The first was to reward the player from a story standpoint, 
and open up further doors to the possibilities of storytelling. The second was that Skajee's player had seen some homebrew and wanted to try out a new character. The end of a quest or an adventure doesn't have to be the end. It can also serve as a platform to present the players with information about the future of that campaign, um, what awaits them over the next hill. Ultimately, it'll be up to them how they respond to these propositions and offerings. In this case, it included the looming threat of war in the region, minor planar travel, transition to the nearby city as an advancement in story and tier of play both, as well as just going back to Fenskeep with pricing and trade restored. It's up to you how, once this chapter of your adventure closes, to present how the next one will begin. I hope you all had as much fun hearing um, how N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God went as I did, both running it and looking back at those sessions. It's been an actual two years since then, and I don't think I've managed to top what happened during that period. Sure, the players have gone different players, characters have changed, and they even have their own ship now, but I've always looked back at this era of the campaign with incredible fondness. That isn't to say I don't like where the campaign is at right now. I go so far as to say I love it, and I think D&D only gets more fun as you continue playing and get better and better at being a dungeon master. I know for a fact the investment and payoff we got from playing this module wasn't something I would have been able to pull off 10 years ago, or even 5 years ago. But I can tell you for sure that as you do this thing of sitting behind the piece of laminated cardboard, rolling fancy plastic dice with too many sides, and telling stories with people you care about, you're going to get better at it. And running against Cult of the Reptile God is a great place to start. I'd also be remiss at the end of all of this to not mention Matt Colville, whose YouTube channel, uh, which is based around DM advice, uh, it's easy to find. It's just Matthew Colville. He does go over this module and how he prepped for the adventure. There's some great tips in there past what I've been talking about for a few weeks at this point, and I definitely recommend you check his content out. It's been a big motivator for me to get back into running the game, even if I'm not running my table like he does. If you have any questions, comments, or whatever, you can email me at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com. I want to start adding a Q&A, so if you have anything you want to ask, please do. Also, you can keep up with what I'm doing by following me on Twitter at dmdcpodcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a review, or tell a friend about the show. That helps me out to keep making content that you all enjoy. As always, appreciate y'all out there. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.